you would take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 13 this morning. Mark chapter number 13. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading the same as last week. And we will focus in particularly on one verse. Today I want to take it a bit slower. I don't know if over the past couple of sermons I feel like maybe I've overloaded and maybe I've overloaded myself. Um, seeing as this may be a new concept as we come to Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse, I think it may be wise just to slow down for a couple of sermons and then we'll pick back up. Um, maybe some speed after that. We may continue to take it slow, but... Um, we're just going to focus in on one verse this morning, but I want to read the entirety of the passage to lay the context for those of you that may not have been with us. Mark 13, verse number 1, you read these words. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again just to, to glorify your name. Father, we, um, we thank you for the privilege that we have in Christ to come boldly to the throne room of grace. Father, we praise you for the opportunity it is to speak so freely with you, but also reverently. Lord, we know that we can ask anything according to your name and it will be given, but we also know that it has to be according to your name and according to your will. So, Father, would you change our will to your will? Father, would you give us the desires of our heart? Lord, would you help us to long for godliness? And would you help us, Father, to desire um, the very will of God and thus pursue it, Father, with all that we are and all that we have? Father, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, may you help us this morning in some, some small way, some finite way, Father, um, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to truly worship you, Father. Would you go with us? Um, Lord, we... Um, I don't know if I felt so distant from you this week. And um, I pray that you wouldn't distance yourself now. Father, that you would go with us in the Word. 
Father, that you would make it fresh and new, that you would transform us by the renewing of your minds, Lord, and that you would help us to care for things in our heart that may be restraining you, may be pushing you, Father, um, to a place of a lack of fellowship. Father, I pray that our hearts would just, just become bare and naked this morning before a holy God and, um, and that you would accomplish, Father, the desire um, that is within you in our hearts. Father, that you would make us more like your son, that as a result of our gathering, Father, you would be, your son would be exalted, the spirit would have rule and reign in our hearts, and the father would be glorified, and that we would be more loving, more gracious, more holy, more righteous, Father, um, a greater sense of justice and, and a whole host of other attributes, Father, that are contained within you. Father, we just pray this morning that we would see you as you are, and um, in some sense, we would be made like you. We know that that won't happen until in its fullness, until that great day. But even on this day, Father, give us a foretaste of that glory, um, whatever it may cost. Father, whatever it may cost. Lord, we pray that if somebody's here that doesn't know Christ, that today, Father, you'd save them. That the word of God would go forth as a sword into their hearts as well as ours. And it would pierce even dividing asunder the very thoughts and intents of their hearts. And Lord, that you would give them a new heart today, that they would spend the rest of their days battling over sin, mortifying it, and living to the honor and glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords, your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us this morning to be faithful. Father, help us this morning to please you in some way as we approach this text and we receive it, Father, with joy and with gladness. Go with us now in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Amen. This morning we return to the Olivet Discourse. Um, for those of you that are visiting with us, we've taken it as our task over the past year and a half or so um, to take the book of Mark as a whole. So we've trekked through the book of Mark verse by verse. That's what brings us um, to this portion of Scripture this morning. And we return to what we've, um, and most Christians refer to as the Olivet Discourse. You'll remember that it's called that because that's the venue that our Lord gives this particular discourse or this sermon. The Mount of Olives was a mountain east of the temple. We read weeks ago in Mark as well as in Matthew's account of Christ leaving the temple not to return again. Um, it was reminiscent of the glory leaving the temple again in Ezekiel 10 and 11. And 1 Kings 6 teaches us that at the inauguration of the first temple... When the presence of God leaves the temple, it's symbolic and real that He has abandoned the people. He doesn't do it flippantly, but according to promise. You'll remember in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you were with us several weeks ago, they're very emphatic concerning the covenant cursings and the covenant blessings that God promised to the nation of Israel. Upon disobedience, God would send forth His wrath upon that people. What would it look like? It would look like their enemies prevailing over them. It would look like a nation rising against them in victory and all the terror that, that, would bring, that they would bring with them. Leviticus 26.14 says, But if you do not obey Me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise My statutes, or if your soul abhors My judgments, so that you do not perform all My commandments but break My covenant, I will do all this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, he says. 
wasting disease and fever which shall consume you, the eyes and sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you, you shall, shall reign over you. Then on verse 23, he, he goes on to say, And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And I will punish you seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. Um, it's interesting in Luke's parallel passage to Mark and Matthew, you read these words in Luke 21-22, For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. It's almost the same language as in Deuteronomy or uh, Leviticus chapter number 26. You'll remember that in Matthew 23, seven woes or expressions of condemnation were pronounced upon, um, upon them, primarily for their hypocrisy, speaking of the nation of Israel, and its leadership, its representatives, the Pharisees, the, the, um, the, the hypocrites of the day. And it's manifested in a whole host of ways, their hypocrisy. Uh, but the condemnation culminates in verses 29 through 39 of Matthew 23, when he lays the blood of the prophets upon that generation and tells them that the cup of the guilt, of their guilt, will be filled, and of their father's guilt, will be filled in their own disobedience when they kill and crucify the, even the prophets that he sent. He said, I will send you prophets. Christ even, um, in some sense, pronounces his, his deity there. He says, I will send you prophets and you will kill and crucify them. And he says that because of their murderous hearts, he says in verse 36, Assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What? The woes. The condemnations. He goes on to say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus leaves the temple and He and His disciples proceed to the Mount of Olives where Jesus looks back and the disciples look back and, they pro and He prophesies of the destruction of that very temple. He says in Matthew 24, 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then they go on to ask him, When will these things be? Jesus answered and said to them in verse number 4, and then he gives the account of the things that would precede, I believe, the temple being destroyed. For verse, uh, 34 verses, he continues. And in verse 34, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. The exact same phrase, this generation, was used previously. We read that in Matthew 23. Thus, my contention is, is that the things that he prophesied were primarily applicable to that generation. It was things that they would see and experience and the New Testament would find fulfillment of prophecies in the period between Christ's death and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. This would formalize the passing away of the old covenant and the installation of the new. The end being spoken of in the initial verses, I'm, I believe, is speaking of the end of the temple and the Levitical economy of the old covenant. This is what the entirety of the book of Hebrews is all about. So I believe that what we have contained within most of Mark 13 is primarily to the audience in which he's speaking. His disciples and those who would receive his word during that generation. 
So as we looked at last week, I believe that this portion primarily dealt with that group of Christians between 33 to 70 A.D. It was during that time that there would be an influx of false messiahs, just an influx, a a growing messianic expectation that would provoke um, just a, a whole host of men who would stand up and say, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, I am the chosen one. Um, we looked and Matthew tells us that there would be false prophets. We see a proliferation of false prophets during that time. Um, we see wars and rumors of wars. We saw famines, we saw pestilences, we saw earthquakes and persecution from civil, persecution to Christians from civil, religious, ecclesiastical groups, as well as even within their own families. It came from every angle and from every source that persecution came upon the people of God, um, particularly during that period of time. And I don't have time to rehearse and rehash all that. I just wanted to give somewhat of a summary of where we've came to this point. Um, I would encourage you to go and listen to that. It's kind of a, a lengthy sermon. All of mine generally are. Um, um, but the but the data's there, and I've really struggled with this. I, I don't want to just dump data upon you. Um, but at the same time, when you're introducing a concept like this that people have never even um, possibly um, been um, uh, heard or, or, or even attended in their thought process. Um, there's a danger of either going too much or not enough. You know, and I, I simply want to be faithful to the Scriptures and want to give enough ground upon which we can stand so that we don't walk away losing faith in God or faith in the Scriptures. Um, thus, I, I tended on the more heavy side, as I generally do, um, to defend what I believe would be a faithful interpretation of, of the Scriptures. That's what we saw last week. We saw last week that all those things, true and most arguable, were true, and were most, ar- and ar- I think most arguably within the testament of Scripture, but heavily supported by um, Roman, Jewish, and Christian historians in that time and the near after. Now, again, you may disagree with the necessary degree to which these things should happen. For example, um, some may disagree with my position or this position, um, and argue that those things may even be true but possibly not to the degree that it will be at the second coming of Christ. Thus, all of these things are future. That's a plausible position to take. And I commend you if that's the position that you take and are willing to defend. And that's something that you have to discern and you need to be convinced of yourselves. At this moment, with my understanding, this is what I am convinced of. And today we'll continue. Today we approach one of the things that must take place before... The temple was destroyed. And for many of us, this will probably be one of the most troubling or difficult to swallow in relationship to what I'm arguing for. Why? Because it's clear today that the gospel has not reached all the nations. But we read in Mark chapter number 13 and verse number 10, in the midst of persecution, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Matthew records in his account in Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the question is, did the gospel reach the nations prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? I'm going to argue in this sermon that it did. That is, insofar as Matthew and Mark and even Christ intend for it to mean. What I mean by that is, 
is that I don't think that Christ in these words intended to mean that every single person alive prior to the second coming of Christ will have heard the gospel. Then what does he mean? What I believe he's saying is that the gospel will be preached and prevail not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles throughout the entire inhabited Roman Empire. How do I come to that conclusion? Um, We're going to attempt to persuade you this morning by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And that the goal is not to come to this text this morning and read it like a 21st century American, but to read it as a 1st century Jew or even a Gentile would. How would the disciples have understood it? More importantly than that, what did Christ intend to mean? That's the most important thing to me. It doesn't matter what you think it means. It doesn't matter what I think it means. What did Christ intend for it to mean? And can it be known? You may come to this and say, well, we're arguing two different things. And Then can it even be known? And I'm going to argue, yes, it can be known. How do we come to that conclusion? By interpreting again Scripture with Scripture. Old Testament and New. And even if the disciples didn't fully understand it at that time, because we know that oftentimes they don't understand what Christ argues and says to them. But then let's go on to the New Testament epistles. Does Paul, does Peter, does James, does John, any of the other New Testament writers give any insight as to what this means? And I believe that it, it does. Now listen to what I don't mean. All right, I don't mean that if this is a reality or because of this, that if the gospel was preached to the nations, what I don't mean is that this doesn't mean that, this, that, that if that is true, it doesn't mean that we don't need to take the gospel to the nations today because it's already happened. That's not what I'm saying. Um, because the truth is, is that they don't have the gospel. This doesn't mean that our missionary zeal should be quenched as an individual or as a church. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't shed tears over those throughout the world that today continue to lie in darkness in environments of untold wickedness to the least of these. Nor does this mean that we shouldn't be overwhelmed with the fact that the Creator of heaven and earth, the King of glory that is contained within, the the, the Savior of all the world, Christ Himself, is not being worshipped today in every nation, tribe, and tongue. We should. We should. Listen, this should not dampen. What I'm preaching today should not dampen our evangelistic zeal, but should ignite it and fan the flames within us, not only as individuals, but as a church, because of this reality. That is, that the gospel was prophesied in days of old that the Savior would come, and when He did, He would crush the head of the serpent. Not only that, but that His salvation would pierce the nations. And when Christ came, He did that very thing. That that reality is that the gospel was prophesied, fulfilled, and propagated according to God's Word. That it would come to the nations, and it did come to the nations. It remains in the nations. Thus, we should conclude that it can go to the nations, and that it should go to the nations, even within one generation. And it could happen even within this generation, if the Lord willed. That if that's the case, we don't throw down our arms and put down our swords and say that the matter is done. But this is a testimony to what God has done, what did God desire to do in the passing away of the old covenant and the installation of the new, and that when Messiah would come, it would effectively reach the nations. That it would go to nation, tribe, and tongue outside of the walls of Jerusalem. That it would pierce places even um, like China within um, centuries. It would go to India. Our earliest records um, record that Thomas died in India. And the movement there today, there's still St. Thomas churches that are, that, are, that are sprinkled all throughout it. 
as a result of the Gospel going forth even within that generation. And that what God has done is that He has broke the back of Satan to deceive the nations such that the Gospel can be proclaimed and will be proclaimed through the nations as long as the new covenant stands. And as far as I'm concerned, it's still installed even to this day. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father and He's given the command to go into all the world and to preach the Gospel with all authority. Thus, we have it contained within the Gospel, the power of God unto salvation to take even to the farthest reaches of the earth. That's what I'm going to argue today. And part of me just wanted to preach this passage, this one little verse. Because as I preached a couple of weeks ago in the family, as we need to be often reminded of it, and the way God organized it and what He desires for the family, I think too that sometimes we need to remind ourselves of old truths, seemingly old truths that should just overwhelm our hearts. Things that we've known and things that we've heard. I don't know that I'm going to tell you much things different today or things that you've not heard, but to remind you of some great truths that God may freshen anew the desire for the gospel to be proclaimed in our community and all across the world. Um, Do not get lost as, as, as these men were privy to do, even in this passage of Scripture. Do you understand that he's writing to Christians here, I, I believe in the first portion, and he tells them not to be deceived. He tells them not to be troubled. He tells them not to worry that they're going to be persecuted, that, that, that wars and rumors of wars, that turmoil and trial and tribulation are coming at their door in a way that has not been precedented among those people in that generation. But when it comes, don't worry. Don't Be bogged down. Um, Preach the gospel. It's going to make it to the ends of the earth and know that that great promise which was to come, um, that as you go, I will go with you always, even to the end of the world. Because the reality is, is that I talk to myself on a lot of days and I talk to you and I talk to Christians. And Christians are so discouraged right now. You are so discouraged right now. You are so worried right now. You are so bogged down with what's going on in Washington, D.C. and within our own county. You are so bogged down by the things that are going on in the world. We're so bogged down by the, you know, uh, by the, by, by the conspiracies of, of the day. And no doubt there are, you know, Psalm chapter two, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the nation's rage. You know, like we look and we, we, we watch CNN and we watch MSNBC and we watch Fox News and we watch our own um, little, little private uh, news outlets and we're just talking about conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. And the reality is, is I don't know what's going on. There's an agenda, but there's always been an agenda. And the agenda has been to oppose Christ, that the nations rage and conspire against Him. Like, let's just go ahead and put that in the bank and stow it away somewhere. Stop worrying about it. They've always opposed Christ for the past 2,000 years. They opposed God before then and they will to this day. There's always been conspiracies. There's always been opposition. There's always been an agenda. Stop worrying about it. Stop being bogged down. God has given us a mission and a commission to accomplish. And if we're not careful... We'll be so worried that we forget why we're here. Why are we here? We are here, in part at least, and primarily to proclaim the name of Christ, not only in this place, but throughout all the world. That Jesus Christ today deserves the reward of His suffering. 
that He died upon a cross ages ago, predicted before time began according to the eternal counsel of God for, every, for, for people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And, as, and on His death, Burial, resurrection, and ascension. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and what was delivered to Him was a kingdom out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And He commands us to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue that He may be worshipped by all those for whom He died. This is what we should be concerned about. This is what we should be um, have a, a godly zeal over. This is if we could have a jealousy, a godly jealousy. This is what we should be jealous over. Christ's deserved Worship, therefore, let us go. So first, I want to give you the argument. I'll give you the argument. I'm going to take you to Matthew's account to do that. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, if you'd like to turn there. Matthew 24 and verse number 14. You read these words, and I'm going to this one because it seems to be the most extensive um, treatment of this. Where he says in verse 14, he ends that portion of Scripture, and he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So the problem for most people in this passage or the issue that I would need to address would be particularly two phrases, the whole world and to the nations. And I'm not trying to do any scriptural gymnastics this morning. I'm not trying to, to squeeze something out of the text that's not in the text. Um, I would simply ask you, um, as a disciple, as a New Testament Jewish Christian, how would they have understood it? And how did they understand it? And I want to give you that today. First, the phrase, the whole world. What does the whole world mean? If you were to pull out your Bible app, Blue Letter Bible or Olive Tree or anything like that, or if you're super spiritual and you carry your um, Oxford Dictionary or your uh, Strong's Concordance or your Strong's Dictionary or Thayer's Greek Lexicon, if you were to look up the word that is used here, um, world, you would read a word that, that literally, the definition would be in the inhabited known world. And what you have contained within this phrase is the whole inhabited earth. If you were to grab, a, again, a Bible dictionary, pull up your favorite Bible app, find this word, that's exactly what you would read. For example, Strong's definition, it says it, it speaks of land, um, specifically the Roman Empire. Earth, world, Thayer's Greek lexicon says it's the inhabited earth. In Greek writings, often the portion of the earth inhabited by the Greeks in distinction with the land of the barbarians or the Roman Empire. If this would be the common expression for the entire Roman Empire, it doesn't speak of the, the, the term cosmos, which, could, uh, which, which would speak of the entirety of the earth, but the, the whole oikumene is the, is the word that's used there, and which from a first century perspective was the entire Roman Empire. And you could go to places like Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1 and you would read that same phrase, the whole world. And it came to pass in those days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And does it mean that every single place and location in the entirety of the world was taxed? No, he's speaking of the entirety of the Roman Empire. Um, Acts chapter 11 verse 28 also speaks of a famine that went out to the whole world. History tells us that it didn't go out to the entirety of the globe, but... Um, primarily to a portion of, 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 of the geography in which they would have understood that that meant. But that's what I'm going to argue, that the whole world is speaking of the entirety of the Roman Empire, which is the way that they would have understood it and the way that it's used in Scripture as well as other literature of their day. Then to the nations. The nations. This term nations is used a dozen, uh, dozens of times um, throughout the New Testament. And it's translated, interestingly, two different ways. 
First, it's translated nations, which is probably what your text of Scripture says. Number two, it is translated Gentiles. Exact same word, Gentiles. This makes sense that it was translated both ways if you think about it from a Jewish perspective. Why? Because to the Jew, there were only two types of people. There was the Jew and there was the Gentile. Gentiles, all other nations would have been lumped into this um, concept of nations. Um, to say that one was called to preach to the nations, it would be synonymous to saying that one was called to preach like Paul to the Gentiles. For example, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 5, you read, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Literally could be translated nations. Don't go to the nations. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our word here, Gentiles, is the exact same word Matthew uses um, in Matthew 24, 14, that could be faithfully translated, but go, rather to the, uh, the, but, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but don't go to the nations. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't take it. You stay within the walls and the boundaries right now of the nation of Israel. Go first to the, lost, uh, the, the, the house of the lost sheep of Israel and later to the nations, later to the Gentiles. Suggestion, and this is a suggestion, you can take it or not. This is my contention, my interpretation. But as we said in the first sermon, at the end of the day, if you come to a different conclusion, we're not going to die on that battle. I'm not going to fight you over it. But this is my contention on this portion of Scripture. That when Jesus says that the gospel shall be preached to the whole world and to all the nations before the end comes, that He's talking about the mission that would be accomplished outside the Jewish world and outside of Judaism. And that would actually pierce the entirety of the Roman Empire. This, by the way, is one of the major issues that we see when we read of the New Testament. And we read in the apostolic church that they had become extremely national and they had become extremely territorial. Even as New Testament Christians, if you were to turn right now to Acts chapter number 1, and this is almost a, um, a second account of Luke's um, great commission or Matthew's great commission. They all at the end of their text have a great commission. Well, there's also almost a great commission. Um, you, you could view it as that at the, book of, uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, you'll probably remember this phrase, where they're called to wait for the coming of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. And you read these words, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And let me just ask you a question. In the book of Acts, in the beginning of the book of Acts, were they fulfilling that commission? Did they go to Judea? Did they go to Samaria? Did they go to the uttermost parts of the earth? And the, question, and the answer to that is, is initially, no, they did. When the gospel is preached in Acts chapter 2 and 3, who is it preached to? It's preached to the Jews. Jews are there from every nation, is, is what Acts chapter 2, I believe it's verse number 5, says. That at Pentecost, and they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That what had happened is that the Jewish people had came home um, for, for Passover and then for a Pentecost. And what you have during that time is the Jewish people, um, they are being preached to by the Apostle Peter, and thus 3,000 are saved. 3,000 who? 3,000 Jews. It didn't go to the ends of the earth. It didn't go to the world. The New Testament church is born, is comprised particularly of saved Jewish Christians. It went first to the lost 
um, sheep of the house of Israel. And it won't be until much later, probably actually years later, that the Gentiles will come in. And it won't be joyful, faithful obedience that actually um, brings, about, um, brings about the fulfillment of this command. Did you know that? That what you would think is that in the book of Acts, because we would think the, the, the apostles were just that spiritual, they would have understood and they would have went out. But it's actually not until about Acts chapter 10 that Peter gets a great understanding of what the new covenant came to do, that what Christ came to accomplish. That it was to go to the nations as the sheep comes out of heaven and he, and he, and he breaks down the barrier between the clean and the unclean and the, the fact that they are now to go to the nations. And it wasn't actually uh, before that before that, I mean, it actually didn't begin to pierce the nations until Acts chapter number 8 when, when persecution comes. They didn't branch out. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, you read, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Speaking of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. Were they at? Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and uh, great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Where to? To Judea and Samaria. You remember that? Do those sound familiar? Acts chapter 1, where would the gospel go? It would go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. Acts chapter number 10, you see that that's... Uh, so, so it went to Judea and the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, there would be this release of the Apostle Peter from this vision out of heaven to go to Cornelius. And he's, 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 he's quarreling even within himself years after the death of Christ probably. Um, whether or not this, is, this should even be a possibility. And God gives this vision coming down out of the heaven that he is to go. That he is to go to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who is not of the nation of Israel, and that the gospel was to go to the nation, that God, by means, and we learned this last week, that persecution would become great to the Christians, and that God, by means of persecution, would, would, would drive the New Testament apostles and people of God out of Jerusalem to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's what we read in Acts 10, as Peter Steele, up to that point, doesn't have a firm grasp that the gospel would be going to the nations. And it's not because he didn't have um, God's command or Christ's command. It wasn't because Christ didn't reveal it to him. And it wasn't because the Old Testament wasn't, um, wasn't clear on the issue. But these things are abundantly clear commands in all of the New Testament, in Christ's commands, as well as clear prophetic utterances in the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is replete with God's um, purpose and plan for Christ in the world. Um, and I need to say this, that it's not as if the New Testament is a second idea. It's not like the New Covenant was something that God made a plan B. It's not, it's, 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 it's not a grand new idea in time and history. The Old Testament is often narrowly interpreted in, in nationalistic terms or from a legalistic point of view. Seldom is the Old Testament seen as a marvelous thrust of God into the world for saving purposes. The New Testament is the progressive fulfillment. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies of the Christ that would come and that He, when He came, would pierce the nations with His kingdom. The New Testament is as grand of a missionary thrust 
only because it is built upon the Old Testament principles, promises, and motifs of the coming Messiah. So was there a missionary thrust in the Old Testament? I mean, all you have to do is look at Genesis chapter 1 through 11 and you see God's, God's ministry to the nations. You know? God's ministry to the nations. That man would be created in the image of God and that man would fall in the garden on the basis of one commandment. That he would enter into sin and sin would, would catapult him into, um, into death and into eternity in hell apart from the very grace of God. That this sinful stage would be that which initiated the very first promise of the gospel to who? To the entirety of the human race. Not just to the Jewish people, they weren't even established at that point, but to the nations, to the people that would proceed from Adam's loins. Genesis 3.15, and the promise was of the hope of mankind. In Genesis 3.15, hope was born. You know whose hope was born? Yours was born. Mine was born. The Jews was born. Why? Because this was the promise of the coming Messiah in a veiled, um, shadowy form. That there would be one that would come. Um, the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent whose, bru- whose heel would be bruised. This would be viewed um, by Christians throughout the ages and even as us as the first gospel. It is the guiding star throughout history and prophecy of the Old Testament that would find its fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. And we could talk about other things. We could go on to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. This covenant that is renewed with mankind and given fresh and new of this dominion mandate in some sense, this cultural mandate, but, it's, but it's, it's undergirded with a covenant to who? To all the world. This promise was made um, to all the world. We can move quickly to Genesis chapter 12, and you can see that after the Tower of Babel and this, um, this, this deluge of sinfulness, um, that God in Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 11 um, chooses a man for Himself. Who's that man? It is Abraham. And what does, he, what does He promise Abraham? He promises Abraham that in his loins would come a people that would be blessed among the nations. And that, that actually the blessing would come through his loin to the nations. If we would see in time and history this invasion of sin, this evolution of sin, this revival of sin, this culmination of sin in Noah and in other places. And that it manifests itself overwhelmingly time and time again. And that when the promise comes, the promise always comes not to just the Jewish people, but ultimately to the nations. To the nations. That God was pursuing the nations. And the Hebrew nation was born out of of the nations. So God promises what? God promises a seed. God promises a land. God promises a nation to Abraham. And we see that that seed in Galatians 3.16 is Christ. Where He says, into your seed. The land, in some sense, is a greater fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. The land that would come to all of God's people. The nation. 1 Peter 2.9 But you were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That, that contained within these promises from an apostolic perspective is not only the Jewish people, but the entirety of the whole world. That they were types and shadows of a greater purpose and a greater fulfillment. That the Lamb was, was great in and of itself, but the greater Lamb would come. And this, this happens so much throughout the Old Testament and as well as in, in the New. And God didn't, doesn't abandon the nations when He blesses one nation above the rest. And we could go on and on about how 
that has been fulfilled in, in the new covenant. That Israel was instituted to be His royal priesthood. Exodus 19, to be a servant and His witness. That even Israel's institution was for the purpose of proclaiming the name of God and throughout the nations. Israel was instituted as this for that purpose. To be a servant, Isaiah 40 through 53. To be his witness, Isaiah 40 through 53. And to show forth his praises among the nations. For example, Isaiah 43 verse 21. This people I have formed for myself. Why? They shall declare my praise. Um, other places, Israel was a peculiar people with a mission. Deuteronomy 7.6, Deuteronomy 26.18 and 19. Three times God speaks of Israel under the Old Covenant as my witnesses. Witnesses to who? Isaiah 43.21, This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. To who? Verse 9, Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Here is the audience of the Israelites. Who? The nations. The people. Here is, in part at least, the mission. As a result, people like Rahab, people like Naaman the leper, leader of Assyrian army, people like the Queen of Sheba, people like Ruth of the Moabites, of the lineage, um, would come to Christ as a result of their faithfulness. That strangers abroad were allowed within to come to Christ as well. That this nationalistic idea um, was, was foreign to the original purposes of God, this territorial type of mentality that the nation of Israel was instituted to bring in the covenants, the fathers, the, 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 the oracles, the, the, the very Word of God and Christ Himself. Why? That He would be a blessing and a fulfillment even of the Abrahamic covenant in some great sense. That He would be that seed that would come and bless the nations. Galatians chapter number 3. This was true through the Davidic age. Psalm chapter number 86, verse 9 and 10. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. This was the grand purpose. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 7. Um, Cause His face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. This was the, this was the testimony of many of the Psalms. This was the testimony of David. This was the testimony of Solomon. 1 Kings 8, 60, um, the, after the, the, the inauguration of the temple. What are they? What is what is what is said? So many things, but this is one of them. That all. Why was it established that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God? There is no other. That the dwelling place of God, the temple in which the God, the the, the presence of God would, would 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 dwell within and manifest its presence, in part would be not only to the, to, to guide the Jewish people in worship under the presence of God, but to be a testimony to the world, to all the nations. You see it in the prophetic age, Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon who? All flesh. You know? People look at that and they and it's often interpreted uh, as all every single person that would ever live. I believe what he's arguing there is he's talking about all peoples. That's why in Acts chapter 2 he says that that, that thing which was which was um, which was spoken of by Joel the prophet is fulfilled now. And it was poured out upon all flesh, it was poured out upon all peoples. And at least in some sense, in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 5, as you see um, the fulfillment of that as the gospel goes forth even to the nations in some sense there as, as the Jews represent all the nations under heaven. Isaiah 49.6, It is to a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. 
that the Old Testament was missionary-minded. It was to be evangelistic, that the Old Covenant was to be the precursor and the foundation upon which the New Covenant would even stand. It would pass away when the fullness came. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can say that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is not for us today. That it had so many pictures and types and shadows and, and gleanings for us. That the New Testament grows out of the Old Testament. It doesn't drop down in human history in a vacuum. It is being built up progressively throughout the ages. That this has always been God's goal. Thus Peter and the apostles should have understood that as like us on many days, they were just men and need for God to come and and reorient this time and time again. I don't think that it needs to be argued that there, that 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 um, that from a New Testament perspective, um, that we need to give ourselves over to the nations as a church. I think this is where we go most of the time for it. We can see that Jesus is mission minded as he goes even to those outside of the nation of Israel at times as they are within. We could argue the twelve and how they um, preached the gospel two by two and how eventually that they would um, that they would carry the gospel to the nations through Peter and through um, the Apostle Paul, even there in the, the book of Acts. We could go to the epistles and argue um, that it is evangelistic in nature, although there's not an explicit Great Commission command. But they are to carry themselves in such a way, Philippians 2, 12-16, through 16, um, that, would, that, that would shine forth as light in the midst of a wicked and a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom, he says, you shine as lights in the world. That Paul commends the churches time and time again for their evangelizing efforts in their communities and beyond. In Romans and in 1 Thessalonians, he commends them for the work of the, of, uh, that they're doing. That all I'm arguing is, is that for all of human history, God had a goal in mind. And it didn't change from Old Testament to New. Okay? It, we, don't, we don't get a great divide there. There is a great divide between the nature of the Old Covenant and the New and its, and its ability to save man. But, but the goal from even before the world began has always been that Christ would enter into the world and save a people for Himself. That has been the goal of covenant altogether. Each and, almost each and every covenant, he, he, within the Old Testament and the New, the purpose of the covenant, you see this phrase that, I will, that, that, that these people will become my people who were not my people. But you read in, um, I believe it's uh, 1 Peter chapter number 2 as well. That we are that royal priesthood, that holy nation. We are a people who were not a people. That God has always been aiming at a people for Himself through covenanting together with those people. That, that the Great Commission doesn't just rest. That evangelism and the mission movement doesn't just rest in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. That this has been always God's purpose. Um, and that if we did not have Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, um, the church would still be as robust as it is. Because the scriptures that we have, the covenants that are given, the promises and the commands that, that have came to us, have came to us uh, not simply because it's a plan that God has, but it is because of who God is. That missions and evangelism is theocentric. It is God-centered. It is growing out. The activity of God grows out of who He is. That this is the fruit and the expression of the very character and nature of God. The fact that He's continually going. You know, Who in Genesis chapter number 3 provokes Adam? 
It wasn't Adam running to God. It was God who went to Adam. And over and over again, you find covenant-making God reaching out to His people time and time again, extending grace that's not deserved and extending grace when they would not come. That that God is, in some sense, um, a mission-minded, worldwide, national, uh, international um, type of three persons. I don't even know how to say that, how to define who He is. God the Father was a missionary. And in the very beginning, He's the one who went to Adam. And then throughout the ages, He's the one that continues to go. That He is the light. He is the Spirit. He is the Spirit um, who, who, who desires worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is the light that penetrates the world. That's what He says. Even Christ Himself, I am the light of the world to, uh, to come overcome darkness. That the, the, the light implies that there's this nature of God that illumines darkened man, that light shines in a dark place, that God is not only that, but He's love. Love is compelling. Love is dynamic. Love is a quality in which God, which, which, which causes a person to move towards another as an object of affection. That God is by nature a goer. God is by nature a creator. God is not just a lover. He is love. He is light. He is all of these things. This is is bound up. Evangelism to the nations is bound up in the character and nature of God. This has always been His goal. This has always been His plan. And that's why when Christ comes, He comes to a nation. He comes to a people and He comes to the nations. That Christ is a missionary. That He came preaching the kingdom of God. He came preaching the fatherhood of God. He came preaching the Son of Man, sin, salvation, and redemption. He came to secure Revelation 7-9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with riot robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That Christ came into the world seeking to save that which was lost. That this is why He comes, not just to the lost house of the sheep of Israel, but He comes in John 4 to the Syrophoenician woman, in Matthew 15 to the centurion in, in Capernaum, and in John 4 He comes to the Gadarene, and Mark chapter 5 or Mark chapter 7 He comes to the, the deaf man of Decapolis. Why? Because He preached to all men everywhere, regardless of class, color, or creed. He preached the kingdom of God that ruled the earth, not just the nation of Israel. The Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He's come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in Me. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify Me. How are they taught? They're taught by the Word of God through the power of the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God is the agent in now taking the work of Christ and applying it to the hearts and the lives of the people when the Gospel is preached. Listen, God has always been... The type of God, because he that's who He is, who has been involved in the nations and um, desires for the nations to come. You know, one way I know that's true, because all the nations will be judged. Every nation, tribe, and tongue 
regardless of whether they were under the, the tutelage of the Pharisees and the nation of Israel, what we find in the Old Testament Scriptures as well as the New is that God will hold them accountable one day for the fact that they did not worship Him with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength. That God has been working um, progressively throughout the ages to reach all the nations. Christ was the ultimate plan A and ultimate goal to reach those. That, that what we see throughout the Scriptures, is the, particularly in the New Testament, is the fruit of God's working, of His character, and of His nature. That this is the fulfillment that the, that the Gospel would go to the nations. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. Again, Acts chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 5. They stand, they're filled with a, with a Spirit of God in such a way that they're clothed with um, divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. That what you find here is that Literally, the text says that the gospel was proclaimed to every nation under heaven, particularly in the Jewish people initially. That's Luke's point. It's simple. That is that the Jews in the dispersion that were dispersed under the judgment of God in the Old Covenant were spread out to the nations. And you'll remember that 70 years later, um, through the repentance of Israel, God allowed them to come back to the land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and reestablish Jerusalem and the dwelling place of God. But what you'll find under the Old Covenant in history, in the Old Testament, is that droves of them did not return. Many of them stayed, men like Daniel, um, men who stayed in Babylon and Assyria and throughout the other nations that they were dispersed to. And what you find here is that in God's providence, He used the very judgment of, of uh, that, that He that he incurred upon uh, the people of God in the Old Testament. He used that providentially to reach the nations because what's going to happen at Pentecost is that these men who now have an understanding of the gospel, part of that 3,000 that are saved, will begin to go back to the nations. We'll take this new teaching, this gospel that has been fulfilled in Christ, this new understanding of Him back to the synagogues that they've established in the Maccabean period and in that interlude period between Malachi and the New Testament, that the gospel will go back to the nations as a result of um, that dispersion. That's what he's arguing there. We find in the book of Acts chapter number 8 that, that the gospel then goes to the Samaritans. And we read a little bit of that earlier, that the Samaritans would believe. We find in Acts chapter 10 that there's this, this idea that, 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 is, that is somewhat seemingly new to the Apostle Peter, that, that, that the gospel should go to the Gentiles and that this Roman centurion should receive the gospel and that he should be saved and brought into the family of God. Again, this is reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, that great mystery when Jew and Gentile now would become one man, one new man. This is a theme throughout all of the New Testament Scripture and the epistles particularly. The Jews didn't understand it, but God did. This was His goal all along to bring in the nations, Old Testament and solidified in the New. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Turn with me to Colossians. You say, I'm still not quite convinced what you're saying is true. I understand. Some days I'm not convinced either. 
Colossians. Again, how would they have understood the text? How did Paul understand the text? So let us compare Scripture with Scripture. You say the gospel hasn't pierced the nations yet. I think what we do oftentimes is undermine the proliferation and the propagation of the gospel during the apostolic age and following after because we look around and we see the darkness in the world. But it was phenomenal, folks. It pierced nation after nation after nation, as we said earlier, that was just in centuries. The gospel was in China. The gospel made it to India. The gospel made it to Europe. And you have the gospel today as a result of what God accomplished through the apostles in the early New Testament church. And we should praise God for that. But what did, what did Paul think? Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 23. Let me go with uh, verse number 5 and 6 first. He's thanking God. Let's read verse 3. We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which was laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as, also, as you also learned from Epaphras. He says he's thanking God that the gospel came to them and the fruit of them, but not only just them, but as it has went to them as it did in all the world. Not only that, verse number 26 or 23, sorry. Read this. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul had some sense of an idea that the gospel had reached the nations, even every creature under heaven. Now, either Paul is a liar, a gross exaggerator, or he had a different understanding of what was meant by the whole world that it didn't necessarily mean to him. Otherwise, he's lying, he doesn't understand, or he has a different understanding of the entirety of the world. Um, turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 1, particularly, and verse number 8. Again, we're going to see this phrase, whole world. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world that the faith of the Roman church had reached and penetrated that what Paul argues here was the entirety of the whole world. Now, what we're not arguing is, is that the gospel had saved universally the entirety of the whole world, just simply that it had prevailed in some sense and been propagated to the nations. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 10. You'll remember in Romans 10 when Paul talks about how a person is saved, Right? It's the Romans road. How? Verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. And what he wasn't saying, he wasn't just saying simply to teach, he wasn't saying that simply to teach a person how to be saved, although that does teach us how a person is saved. The point that Paul is making is about the whoever. That the Gentiles are included in that whoever. I believe that that's a large part of the argument that's being made in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I know some of you are some solid doctrines of grace guy and sovereign election. I'm still going to argue that I believe that a large portion of what he's arguing here is that he can save whoever he wants. And if he wants to save a Gentile, he can. If he wants to save a Jew, he can. That it's whoever. And I believe that that's 
uh, in large part, context-wise, uh, in large part, according to the context, that often that's what he's arguing, that whoever, Jew or Gentile, um, can be saved and receive the gospel, and that's actually what God desires. He goes on in verse 12 to say, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever, Jew or Greek. That's the idea. Then in verse 14, he goes on about believing. You remember that text, sending the preacher. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Beautiful are those that preach the gospel, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But then in verse number 18, you read these words, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world, that the gospel went out. He's, this is the argument. He's not just saying that we need to send more laborers and that, 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 with, that they shouldn't go without a preacher. What he's arguing actually is that the gospel has went. Have they not all heard? You know, Have they not believed? Then he's going to go on and argue against unbelieving um, Israel. That the idea is, is that has the gospel not went out to all the world? And that's what he goes on. He says, uh, he goes on to say, but I say, did Israel not know? How did they not know that the gospel would go to all the earth? That's the question. He goes on to argue, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you uh, to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Who? The Gentiles. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Who? The Gentiles. But to Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. I say then, has God cast away His people in Romans 9? Is what he goes on to say. Or he goes on to argue uh, in, in, in Romans chapter 11. But the argument it rests upon that the, the gospel had went out. That the gospel was proclaimed unto all the earth. Romans 16, verse number 25. I'll read to you one more time. One more text. This is the benediction of the apostle. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience of the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. It seemed like Paul had a different understanding of what it meant that the gospel would go to the nations than what most people do and maybe we do today. So did the gospel go to the nations? The Apostle Paul thought that it did. Um, in more than one place. And he built his argument for salvation at different points upon the fact that it did and the fact that people did not come because it was preached to them um, in the nations. So what in the world does that have to do with us, right? You say, I believe you. Maybe. <laughs> but what does that have to do with us? I mean, you look at the world around us. You mean one that is at the darkest hours of human history? A world filled with most godless activity you could ever think of? One where slavery abounds? Abortion is widespread? Degradation of women and children thrive? Sexual immorality is running rampant everywhere you look. Violence is not only accepted as normal, but it's glorified and sold to consumers in the marketplace. I mean, what in the world does Matthew have to do with us 
in the midst of a wicked and perverse nation like that. You know what I just described to you? The world in which the apostles lived. You thought I was talking about America. Or maybe you didn't. But if you were to read writers and authors of the day of Roman and Greek literature as well as Jewish history, you would begin to find that from a spiritual perspective, this is one of the darkest hours in human history. Slavery was peaking in the Greco-Roman world at approximately 60 million slaves. The gladiator scene between man and beast was at its height. There was a bloodthirsty nature among men not before visualized at such a level. It had not only accepted, but it was enjoyed by the masses. If you think that your televisions are bad today, walk into a Roman theater, a gladiator ring between man and beast, between man and man or beast and woman, and you would have seen some of the most debauched um, darkness in all the world. Often even the people would choose who would live and who would die. It was the greatest period of degradation of women. Abortion was widespread. We often think that abortion is a new phenomenon, but Plato and Aristotle in the writings actually recommended at times. Infidelity and immorality was as common as it is today. Pagan religion was running rampant and had little influence upon morality. There was no authority over the human spirit according to the Greek culture. There was widespread unbelief in fate, destiny, or any, or any afterlife. Self was the ultimate end of man and his destiny was determined by him. This was not an American ideal. It was pioneered by the Greeks who were very academic and philosophical. This was the age of free thinkers. And you'll remember as Paul, you'll remember that as Paul engages with them in on Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, that monotheistic religion was viewed as antiquated, uneducated, and even foolish. And the gospel prevailed. Do you understand that? The gospel went forth in that generation such that the nations were pierced. Persecution under Nero, I mean, we, we talked about it last week, was just, was just ungodly and unthinkable what they did to Christians. The persecution arose, um, turmoil all around, wars and rumors of wars. I mean, just, just, just a, a, a wickedness on the rise in the Greco-Roman world. And God did a work in those days to bring you and me the gospel. You know, you're looking around, I'm looking around thinking, what in the world? Let's just, let's just pitch a tent up and, and, and anchor a pole in the ground and hang on till Jesus comes. And what I'm saying, and I think what the text is arguing, and the goal of all of human history is that the gospel would go forth into the nations. And that, that's why Christ came and suffered. That's why He died. That, that, that let all of hell um, garner up against God Himself, and He will never prevail. John tells us that His back was broken in one of His epistles, that the works of the devil were destroyed, that He could no longer deceive the nations, and that even in the midst of persecution, trial, and tribulation, that that's often what God uses to reach the nations with the gospel. That that's why it's applicable. That, that, that wasn't only God's intent in that age, although that would happen prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but this would be characteristic and should be characteristic of the church throughout all the ages. And that's why man after man and tyrant after tyrant and king after king has come along the way and tried to, to just exterminate Christianity, and yet the gates of hell have never prevailed against it. You say, but abortion's on the rise, but slavery's here, but persecution's coming. Then bring it on. Then let it ride. <laughs> let us preach the gospel. 
Let us follow our Lord's command in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, and go into all the world and disciple the nations in a way that we actually believe that it could happen. Why? Because it did. Because Paul and Peter and Thomas and Mark and Matthew and Bartholomew and the apostles took it to the ends of the earth in some sense, such that it's still reaching the ends of the earth even to this day. Listen, you're not Jew, friends. We're Gentiles separated from the initial covenants, but God has brought us in through the faithfulness of Christians throughout the ages and the activity of God in them. And it was amazing. It was amazing. You know, I would encourage you sometime just to read the history of the New Testament church as well and what God did during that age. You know that God not only did it supernaturally, but providentially. Did you know that? The Galatians, there's a phrase in there that says, um, in the fullness of times, Christ came, born of a woman. Do you know that the New Testament times was just such a unique period of time that just paved the way for Christ to come and the nations to be pierced? <coughs> you know, uniquely in that time we mentioned last week that it was a period of Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome. But not only that, there was a almost a universal world religion and a world language that was created um, centuries before, um, even by um, Alexander the Great who desired for um, total world domination. And he saw that he needed a one world language to accompany that. And he thought that Greek was the only most favorable, was the most favorable one. Um, thus, the Greek New Testament was translated around 200 B.C. prior to the time of Christ. And it was the, New Test- or the Old Testament, the Bible, of the apostles in Christ themselves who quoted often. Not only that, but, but Rome was at large who had created this pact among the nations such that war was subsided and that there was a relative peace throughout. Not only that, but they created roadways in which, in which would facilitate travel and peace among the nations. Um, not only that, but you have the Jewish people um, who translated the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, into that common language, which we know as, of as the, the Septuagint, the Bible of the early New Testament church. Not only that, but you have, as I mentioned earlier, Jews spread all throughout the nations. Why? As a result of their disobedience, but through the providence of God, when the gospel is preached, they will take it. How? On the freedom and the use of roads that was, that was paved the way by, by Rome themselves with a Greek New Testament in which the people back home, chances are they could read and understand the gospel even in their own language. That God historically and providentially had sent Christ in the fullness of times um, in such a way that, that, that paved the way for the gospel to go forth even in the midst of wickedness and perverseness, and when men and tyrants rose up to conquer the nations, God used it and utilized it as a means to project and propagate the gospel to a lost and a dying world, even you today. You know what that says to me? That says, let all hell, the devil, and all of his minions conspire, Psalm chapter 2, against, and in the last day he will laugh. And he will even use the means by which we think and we often believe will be our demise um, and, our, and our overturning, our quieting. And He will often use that providentially to propagate the gospel even to the nations. That God was supernaturally working in His Son such to secure the salvation of all those that would believe through His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And He's ruling and governing and reigning now at the right hand of God the Father. But He's also working here, friends. He's working in this community. He's working in America. He's working among the nations. And that providentially, we should trust God that even in the midst of all of this, we should not worry. We should not contend with one another. We should not become divisive. We should not forget why we're here. 
Listen to me. Maybe this needs to be said. We are not a political entity. We are not a social institution. All right? We are not an organization with some other agenda. We exist for Jesus Christ and Christ alone that the nations, that, he, that Jesus may receive the reward of his sufferings and that needs to be extended to the nations. We need to be, um, we must be. The gospel must be preached to the nations. And I know that that was relative to them and that text is what I'm arguing. But listen, it is relative to us today. The gospel, listen, the gospel must be preached to the nations we must go, not out of pride, but out of a, a, a bold humility that when God commands us to go, that He will go with us. And whether we live or whether we die, whether we live suffering or whether we die suffering, the gospel will never fail. It will never fail. It will. Is it uh, Tertullian last week? I want to read that quote to you one more time just because... Tertullian says, he goes on to those who would argue against the Christian faith and advocate their persecution to annihilation. He argued with the, the magistrates, not in a rebellious way. But he says, we are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who have endured pain and death as long, so long as they are not Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. When you chose recently to turn a Christian girl over to a brothel keeper rather than to the lions, you showed that you knew that we counted chastity dearer than life. But you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men that you revere, not like the criminals and the slaves. And when they find out why we die like we do, they join us. The problem is, is that we often... We often value life dearer than Christ, isn't it? That's why we worry. Instead of valuing Christ dearer than life. That's why we don't fight. That's why we clump up in our holes. That's why we create little monasteries. That's why we become hermits. And we argue it's Christian virtue. It's wise. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Maybe we should be going into the highways and hedges. Maybe we should be going to the hard places. Maybe we should be taking the gospel to the streets. You say, well, that's not wise. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not that maybe we should do it. Maybe it's that we must do it. The gospel must be preached to the nations. Why? Because... That's been the goal of human history since the very beginning. It rests in the very nature and character of God. The Old Testament paved the way and it was solidified and fulfilled in the new. And now Jesus Christ reigns and rules at the right hand of God the Father just to, to facilitate that very thing. Maybe we should, must do it. We must do it. Are you doing it? When was the last time that the gospel ever touched your lips? Not your ears, your lips. When was the last time that we were just so overwhelmed with the depravity of man and our loved ones and the fact that they're lost without God that we could 
We could echo with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 that we would wish ourselves accursed. I mean, like, who thinks like that? Anybody here think like that? I know that I don't. But I'm praying that God would give us something like that. That would push us on and push us out of our comfort zone in which um, we would see the necessity of Christ receiving the reward of His suffering. It's not even so much about them, although God will give you such a love for them and for the people and for one another um, that will push you out of your seats to proclaim the gospel because you must. But even more than that, the God of heaven and earth, creator, king, and savior of all the world, died for the nations. And Christ's Bible Church should do all that we can to give Him not only the worship He deserves, but the worshipers He deserves. Are we doing that? Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior. It's a divine appointment that you're here. This is the reason in which you exist. You were created ages ago, placed here in this, this land. Acts chapter 17 tells us that you may seek after Him. But you were created for that very purpose, to worship the King of glory, the Creator of all heavens and earth. But today you're wrong with Him. Little one, little boy, little girl, older man, older woman, you're wrong. You're wrong in pursuing your own life. You're wrong in pursuing... Um, the, 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 the accolades of this world, um, promotion, power, money, wealth, you name it, you're wrong. That's not why you exist. You don't exist for your family. You don't exist for your husband. You don't exist for your wife. You don't exist for your children. God lays responsibilities upon you, but it's innately um, grounded in the very nature and character of God. You exist for Him. And if you're rebelling to him, against Him today, then He begs you. And implores you to, commands you to repent. And to come unto him, he says, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That Jesus Christ died on your behalf. And that if you today will put your faith and trust in him, you will be saved on the authority of God and the scriptures. And I beg you to do that today. May it not be said of you, as it was said of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you and your children, but you would not. He sent Christ to gather the nations. And I'm begging God that he would continue to do that even now. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ. Father, what a joy and privilege it is to serve you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, what a blessing it is to know you and to know you as eternal life. Father, I just pray that I was faithful in that. Father, I pray that you'll take, continue to take the failings of man and propagate the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That you'll continue, Father, to use unholy things and accomplish holy things out of them. That you'll continue to use finite men and women little boys and girls, to do infinite things. Father, it's so encouraging just to see the gospel at work in the first ages of the New Testament church. 
Father, to not get so bogged down about all the circumstances and environment around me, but to remember that there's a God in heaven, that there's a Christ on the throne who gave his life that this might be accomplished. So we better believe it can be accomplished even now. That this is the sole reason, it seems, that we have the gospel. Not because we sought after you, because you time and time again through Old Testament and New and even now continues to seek and to save that which is lost. Father, would you revive a spirit of evangelism in our own hearts? Not necessarily missionaries. We know that there'll be particular people called to that, but not all of us. Just give us a love for the gospel, a love for the character of God, a love for people, and a love for your will to be accomplished in this world. And I trust if that's the case, Lord, that we will go in whatever avenue or area you've called us, of work or life or home, the gospel will be proclaimed because we must. This isn't a should type of gospel. This is a gospel that must be preached by his people. So Father, continue to preach it to us in our own hearts that we continue to serve you out of gratitude of heart and humility recognizing that the only reason, Father, that we are the whoever is because Christ was the somebody who came into the world and saved us on your behalf. Thank you, Father, for sending him. Thank you, Christ, for coming. And so thankful for the Spirit who continues to keep me, even some days when I don't know if I want to be kept. But you keep working, and you will, Father until that day. Thank you for that promise that he who has begun a good work in me will fulfill it till the day of Christ. Thank you for that promise. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.